Well, as we gather this Lord's Day morning, it is a special occasion because it is the occasion that we celebrate our Lord's victory over death, just like every other Lord's Day. That is reason enough for us to celebrate. But yet there is a, a, a date that is nearing, that is very dear to every evangelical Christian's heart, or should be at least, which is Reformation Sunday, the 30, or which is the Reformation Day, the 31st of October. And usually it's been uh, uh, an habit of many Christian churches, many Protestant, Protestant churches, to, the, to mark this occasion on the closest Lord's Day to, to the Reformation Day and to remember what the Lord has done. And today I want us to cast our minds back to that moment. As we look at this passage, I want us to cast back our minds to that moment, to that pivotal moment in church history when the clear call of the gospel was once again heard, when the, the clear call of once obscured, uh, return, uh, once obscured message to return to scripture was heard throughout the world. It was the call of sola scriptura, of, script, of returning to scripture alone, ringing out, echoing, for us to return to a pure, undiluted, unadulterated gospel. It was on the 31st of October of 1517 that a young monk by, his, uh, by the name of Martin Luther went up into the castle doors of the, or into the church doors uh, in the castle of, uh, of Wittenberg and nailed 95 theses to that door against 95 theses against the adulterous, uh, adulterations of the doctrine in his day. And it sparked a movement by God's grace that restored the church to its biblical foundations. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Although many would accuse uh, Protestants of belonging to a church that was created by men uh, 500 years ago, that is not the case. The reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, Tyndale, Latimer, Ridley, they were not uh, innovators. They were not the founders of a new religion or a new church, but they were restoring the church to its ancient faith. They were reviving truths long, uh, long buried under the, the, the rubble of human traditions. For 1,500 years, the, the church had been slowly but surely drifting away from its biblical foundation and adding on top of the biblical truth human traditions, human misunderstandings. And the, the reformers were the, one that looked, were the ones that looked back and said, we need to go back to scripture. They sought to, not to create, but to reclaim, to peel back the layers of darkness and to bring the light of scripture, especially when it comes to the gospel. And for us, they serve as an example. 
their boldness, their, their courage, their faithfulness, for us is a legacy that we too should follow. And today, as we look at this passage, a passage that was very near and dear to every reformer, because it is a passage that goes to the heart of the, of the debate, it goes to the heart of the, of the polemic in the, 15, in the 1500s, we are reminded of these same truths that sparked the Reformation. And we are exhorted to hold fast to the, to the gospel of our Lord Jesus as revealed in scripture, because we too are just as prone as the early church was when it started to drift away from the true gospel. We too have the same proneness of adding, of, of replacing, and of changing just a little bit of what the gospel is. And we may find ourselves, and I think we found ourselves, uh, we find ourselves in that situation in 21st century evangelicalism. Last week we were looking at Paul as he was encouraging, uh, exhorting the, the, the Ephesian church to trust and rely, to hope in the power of God. This seemingly small and insignificant church in, the, in this uh, long, uh, large, and, and, and potent uh, city to not rely on their wisdom, not rely on their, on their expertise, but to rely on God's power, this uh, sin-vanquishing, Satan-defeating, death-conquering power that exalted Christ and, as Paul says, is at work towards us who believe. And today, as we come to chapter 2, uh, Paul just uh, is showing us how that power materializes in the life of each individual believer. What Paul does and what we'll look at in, uh, uh, today is Paul just juxtaposes, he, he, he shows us the darkness of human sinfulness and he just juxtaposes it with God's love and grace. He begins with a theme of, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses and then from verse 4 onwards to verse 10, he tells us of what God has done. So today we look at the work of sin against us. And number two, at the work of God in, for, and through us as believers. So the work of sin against us, those three first verses... The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, paints the most bleakest, uh, darkest, and despairing of pictures. And we need to be reminded of this. Remember that Paul is saying this to Christians. He's not uh, using this in, a, in an evangelistic way at this point. Although this passage can be used evangelistically, that Paul is saying this to believers. He's reminding them of what they were at it, uh, before. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of who we were. We need to be reminded of our past, of our sins committed. Not so that we would wallow uh, in, in sorrow over, over the past and be crushed because of our past or be nostalgic over it, but that we should look at it so that it highlights for us what God has done, where the Lord has brought us. 
When we forget who we are, we should look at who we were and then work ourselves to understand what we are in Christ. And man's condition, our own condition, outside of Christ, without God, is in one word, as Paul presents it here, completely hopeless. There is no hope here. Paul's diagnosis of the human condition outside of Christ is one that is uh, bleak and hopeless. It's not like Paul is saying, oh, well, you had a disease, uh, you were functioning at 50% of your capacity. No, Paul paints a picture of complete and utter helplessness. And that's something that every human being is in. That's the condition of every son and daughter of Adam in this world. Sin is not simply a, a, a sporadic eruption, a disease, but it's a state. It's a universal condition. And Paul paints it with four dramatic, dramatic facts here that highlight man's condition before conversion. Number one, it says that mankind is dead. He begins with pulling no punches. He doesn't work himself into, into this. He just says it as it is. Mankind, man, is dead. He, he made you alive. Who were dead in trespasses, in sins. And before I say what it means to be spiritually dead, which is what it means here, or what we're looking at, let me say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to be spiritually dead, or to be dead, it doesn't mean that we cannot do good things. It does not mean that a man who is dead is unable to do, in the eyes of others, morally upright, good things. An unregenerate person, an unconverted believer, a, a person who hasn't been born again, can still do, be a good father, can still be a good husband, can still be a good son, be a, a model citizen, be an altruistic person. Can a person who is dead in their sins and trespasses can still live a civilly, a civically decent uh, life? Jesus says in Luke 6 that the Gentiles, the unbelievers, they do good things to those who do good to them. So an unbeliever is able to do good things in the, in the eyes of one another. The barbarians in Acts 28 you remember when we were going through Acts, the barbarians uh, in, in the island of Malta, uh, they, were, they showed Paul, although they were unbelievers, they showed Paul unusual kindness. So when we say that mankind outside of Christ is dead in, the, in, in their sins and trans, trespasses, we don't mean that people are unable to do any morally, uh, any uh, seemingly good things. We're saying that they are unable to do ethically, morally, in God's eyes, what is good. It means that mankind is dead in their sins and trespasses. And that is clear that that's what Paul is talking about here. Before Christ, man is alive to, to all kinds of desires and, and, uh, and attractions, but they are all towards sin. There is no desire on the part of man to the things of God. That is what it means to be dead here. He has no spiritual life. 
He can do nothing in and of himself to please God. He is utterly and completely helpless. Just as a physically dead person is unable to, to respond to physical stimul, stimulus, stimuli, a spiritually dead person is unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. The illustration is clear. A corpse is unable to hear, is unable to, to feel, is unable to hunger, is unable to thirst. It is dead. And a spiritually dead person is unable to do those spiritual things, to, to have a, a sense of longing for spiritual things that is dead too. There is no appetite. And the cause of this death, Paul says, is our transgressions, our trespasses, our sins. And here we won't go into much detail because otherwise we, we'll get uh, very bogged down in this, in this one passage. But when Paul says trespasses and sins, is referring to both uh, the sins we commit uh, to, the, to our open uh, crossing the line that God has set before us and for the sins that we commit by not doing something, by missing the mark. Sin, uh, in fact, the word sin here uh, refers to missing the mark. So it's the sins of omission or the sins of commission, what we do, and the sins of omission, the, sin, the things we don't do. That's what Paul has in mind here, those, those two elements, active and passive, positive and negative, aspects of man's behavior. And because of this, the trespasses and sins, mankind is death, is separated from spiritual life that exists in God. The wages of sin, Paul says to the Romans, is death. We are dead because of sin. All mankind. That's the picture that, God, uh, that Paul presents here under the inspiration of the Spirit. A second element that Paul speaks of in this dark picture is that man is disobedient. Man is disobedient. That's verse 2 and 3. Not only dead, but openly disobedient, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Mankind, outside of, uh, of God's grace, walks in trespasses and sins according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the prince who now, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So you see what Paul presents here. It's, it's this, these three forces at work. The reformers used to talk about the three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They were quite clear on these three elements. And these three elements are here present. We have the world, we have the, 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 the devil, and we have the flesh. All three conspiring in our disobedience or towards our disobedience in our natural estate, or in our natural state, that is. So what is the world here? When it says that you are walking according to the course of this world. When Paul says world here, he's not referring to the created world. As, uh, as the, the planet Earth, uh, I would say. He's talking about this antithetical uh, world, this God-hating, Bible-denying, 
defying world. He's talking not about the world as we see it, but he's talking about the world that opposes God. It's the, it's the, what the Apostle John says, that those who love the world cannot love God. It's not the world as the planet. It is the world as an institution, as a system. The system of the world is utterly opposed to God. That's why James can say that whoever is a friend of the world is an enemy to God. And the world is steering us, conforming us into things that are antithetical, that are opposed to God's uh, will. The world, either by, by its political, economical, moral, social oppress, uh, oppression shifts us towards a, a dehumanized, uh, God-denying experience. Might be secular. We repudiate God. We don't believe in God. The world is amoral as well. It doesn't believe in absolutes. Nowadays, uh, what is true for you can be false for me, and you're, there is no absolute for truth or in this world. The world is tyr tyrannic in the way that it, it forces us to be materialistic, to be focused on the here and now and the, on, the, on, the, on, on my present needs instead of focusing on God and his will, this consumerist world. So the world, walking according to the, to this, to the course of this world, is these things. But not only we have the world, we have the devil. The devil, the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The Bible has a spiritual view of these things. The devil is not just some kind of metaphor, uh, of some kind of, of uh, illustration for us to understand something. The devil is a very real individual. The devil is the, the father of the disobedient. He is the one who works in the sons of disobedience. He rebelled against God and he led Adam and Eve in the garden to, to disobey God too. He tempted them and made our parents, first parents, be disobedient. He's invisible, but he's a real enemy. And Paul says in this dark and black picture that he presents, that we have the devil for our father. And that's a very dark thing, and that's a very scary place to be, if we understand it. Because the devil is, never sleeps. He never takes a day off. He doesn't take any holidays. He is diligent. He is always at work. He's always uh, at, his, at his craft. Hugh Latimer, one of the fathers of the Reformation here in England. Um, coincidentally, he was the one who was uh, martyred uh, next to Ridley, uh, Nicholas Ridley, uh, that in a secondary way gives is the namesake of this church, Ridley Hall. Uh, and as he was dying on the cross for these truths, he said to Nicholas Ridley, be of good cheer. Master Ridley, as they were uh, dying, not in his house, as he was dying at the stake being burned, 
He said to him, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, for today we light a candle in this nation that will never be put out. He died for these truths. And this Hugh Latimer, he once preached a sermon in the old uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, the one before the, the great fire. Uh, and he, he said, he was quite clear about the, the, the ministry and the work of the devil. He said, and now I would ask a strange question. Who is the most diligent bishop, prelate in all England that passes all the rest doing his office? You might be surprised. Who is it? You want to know the name? He says, I know him well. There is no one that passes all the other. That passes all the other. There is one that, is, that passes all the other. He is the most diligent preacher in all England. And will he know who he is? I will tell you, it is the devil. He is never out of his diocese. He is never from his cure. You will never find him un unoccupied. He is ever in his parish. He keeps residence at all times. You shall never find him out of the way. And that's the scary bit. Because when we are in our sins, dead in our sins and trespasses as sons of disobedience, the devil is actively at work and he is diligent. But it's not just the world and the devil, is it? The Apostle Paul is clear. Lastly, in this first point, it is our own selves as well. And perhaps this is the worst enemy. Someone once said that we are our own worst enemies. And it is true. It is the flesh. Not our body. When, when Paul says here, we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. When Paul says flesh, he's not speaking about our physical body in the same way that he wasn't speaking about our physical world. He's speaking about, about our desires, of our, the desires of our flesh, our inward movements, our, our, our longings. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, and we were conducting ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. The picture that is presented for, 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 to us by Paul is one of a complete and utter inability, because there is nothing in ourselves that desires God. We were conducting ourselves in this way, and therefore, we stand condemned. That's how he finishes. Were, when we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We stand condemned of God's wrath. We stand uh, condemned of that wage of sin that is death. Listen to the words of our Lord Jesus. That very famous passage that we all love, that we all know familiarly, that gets quoted uh, perhaps uh, more than any other passage in Scripture, for God, so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that every uh, one who, who believes should not perish but have eternal life. But then look at what it says in verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. So you see the dark picture of what sin does to us. We're dead because of sin. We're enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are condemned under God's wrath. 
There is nothing in us capable of releasing ourselves from this. Can a dead person bring himself to life? Can a slave release himself from his slavery? That's the dark picture of those who live under the tyranny of sin, the devil, the world, and the flesh. But there is hope. It was once said by a, by a, by a Puritan, I believe it was Samuel Rutherford, for everyone look at self, at the dark picture of self, let us take ten looks at Christ. And that's what Paul presents us here. Having painted this picture, look at those two first words of verse 4. But God. That's the gospel. The bleakness, the darkness, the incapability, helplessness, hopelessness of, of our situation. But God. But God. Two wonderful words. If you were to summarize the gospel, if you were to summarize the gospel that the reformers fought for, that we should fight for, that we should believe in, and that we should give glory to God for, if you were to summarize the, the work of God in Christ in our lives in two words, there are no two more suited words than this but God. Because we were dead. We were enslaved to the world of flesh and the devil. We were hopeless and helpless. But God, he came and intervened. It is God's intervention that changes our prospect. It is God's work that shifts our situation. It's not man that pulls himself out of the, the mud. It is God that drags us out, cleanses us through the blood of his son and, 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 and closes with the righteousness of his son. The gospel is not about what man does. The gospel is about, is about what God does. What God has done in, through, and for us. His astonishing and amazing work. So that he receives the glory. If salvation was like the Roman Catholics believed a, a, a play between God's grace and human works, God doesn't receive the glory. It is not about God. It's about us and God. But that's not what Paul says here. There is only one active member in bringing salvation. And it's certainly not man. It is God at work. And in this paragraph from verse 4 to verse 10, again, we're going to have to be uh, succinct in considering it. Paul gives us this contrast. It, here's the darkness of where we were, and here's the brightness of what God has done. You cannot paint two more contrasting pictures. All that we were, how helpless and, 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 and totally depraved we were. And how glorious, gracious, kind, and loving God is. Man doesn't receive any glory here. Just as we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Paul says that he has raised us 
that has made us alive together in Christ. Just as we were enslaved to sin, now we are saved by God's grace, verse 5. Just as we walked in the road of disobedience before, now in, in, uh, in, this, passage, in this paragraph, we, it said that God has prepared a way for us to walk in beforehand. It's wonderful. And we are redeemed in, the, in these four different elements. It's the same redemption, but Paul gives us four facets of this diamond of the gospel for us to appreciate. Number one is that God loved us. It says that God, who is rich in, in, in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Why did God do it? Why did God save us? Well, because we really deserved it. The motivation for God was because he, he, he owed us one. No, Paul says, because God's mercy and love, he loved us. It is him who is rich in mercy. It is him who displays the grace. That is totally unmerited. As Paul says, so that ma no man should boast. Paul is always so emphatic that salvation is such a, a, a free gift from God that no man can beat his chest like the, the, the Pharisee in, 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 uh, in Jesus' parable and, and say how, I, how deserving I am of your salvation. Quite the contrary, what Paul would say. Quite the contrary, you're completely undeserving. That's why it is grace. We are saved by his mercy and grace. And he speaks of these four words, mercy, love, grace, his kindness. This talks to us about what we already considered in, 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 in chapter 1, God's election. Look at verse 4, chapter 1. If you turn back, when we think of, about God's love, it says there that he chose us in him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, or just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. It's that truth that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before any of us would have earned or merited any kind of mercy and grace, otherwise it wouldn't be grace, but before anyone had done anything, God chose us in him. Not for things that we have done, but unconditionally, he, God chose us. He elected us. It and you ask why? Because it pleased God to do so. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It wasn't according to the good works we, which we had done. It wasn't according to the, to the faith-filled, repented uh, life that we had, were displaying. God chose us according to the good purpose uh, of his will. To the good pleasure of his will. No one anywhere, Paul says, can lay a claim on God's mercy. It is as Paul expresses it. Uh, 
That's what Paul said. That's what the Roman Catholics in, in Luther's day were missing. They thought that we could earn our merit. They thought that we could uh, work our salvation, in, in, work towards deserving and earning our salvation in some way. And the question is, who did God love? The question is, uh, is answered in Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The ones that God loved are the ones who received redemption through God's blood, through Christ's blood. Later on, Paul will even say in chapter 5, as he's uh, exhorting husbands and wives, as he exhorts the, the husbands to love his, their wives just as Christ loved, not the world at large, everyone and died for everyone, but Paul uh, clearly says, just as Christ loved the church, and Jesus himself said it, that his love is for his sheep, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. That is the truth that God died for particular, or Christ, God the Son, died for particular pe people. He died for the particular sins of a particular people. And the third truth that is emphasized here as well, or another truth that is emphasized here, it is that it is all a work that is irresistible on the part of God. Tell me if, if a man can, can uh, consent to his, uh, to his resuscitation while he is dead. I know in, in real life, in, phys in, the, in the physical world, uh, we can consent to being resuscitated, but that's why we're still alive. We sign a, uh, if we don't want to, we sign a do not resuscitate order. But if you haven't, if you're dead, what's the point of coming to a dead person and, and, and trying to ask him, do you want to be resuscitated? Can you resuscitate yourself? Can you uh, work with me, cooperate with me and, and tell me uh, what to do? No, it is a work of God. It is a work that, that is done apart from the dead person. What, what did Lazarus uh, cooperate with Christ when Christ shouted into the grave, Lazarus, come out? No, he was irresistible. He was dead. The word came from Jesus. He was raised. He didn't have a, 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 a say or a choice. And that is the amazing truth here. Just as we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, he raises us up. He brings us to life through his great power, through his God, Christ resurrecting, Christ exalting power, he raises us up as well. It's irresistible. And many of us, no, that, that is the truth, because there was a time, in an instant, when we were opposed to God's things, and all of a sudden, the things we once hated, we now love, and the things we once loved, we now hate. 
Paul says that God exalted us. God exalted us. Raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here the, 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 the parallel is what, what, with what Paul was saying in chapter 1 at the end. He was speaking about that power that, that gives encouragement and hope to the church in Ephesus. The power that is towards us who believe. The power that, that puts all, put all things under his feet. That exalted Christ and gave him a name above every name. And, and caused him to sit at his right hand. That power is towards us who believe. That same power that resurrected him. That same power that exalted him. That same power that seated him in the right, high, the right hand of God. In the, in the high places. In the heavenly places. Is the same power at work in us. And then from verse 7 towards the end, and I'm closing, we read that not only God saves us, but that God keeps us saved. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in, the, in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The purpose of God to save us, his motivation was love, uh, and the, the purpose was that he would receive the glory in the ages to come. We're being told, aren't we, that we are saved by grace. And that's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that he receives the glory. So that he receives the, the blessedness that is due to him. He keeps us saved. It's not so much we usually this doctrine is presented in the in the reformed tradition as the perseverance of the saints as though uh, or more colloquially it's known as once saved always saved if you pray jesus into your heart once in your life you're then saved you can go and on your life and you're saved once saved always saved that's not the point I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe in once saved, always saved. But that's not really how it's, it's presented in Scripture. The way it's presented in Scripture is that the grace that saves us is the grace that keeps us saved. That the, the God is the one that perseveres with us. Not because we deserve it, ultimately, just like we didn't deserve the, the, the beginning of salvation. We don't deserve the keeping of, of uh, His grace in keeping us saved. But because of his unwavering commitment to his own glory, to receive glory in the salvation of, of an undeserving people like we are, who were dead in their sins and trespasses, and even after being saved, are still a, a massive mess of contradictions because we say ourselves to be the children of God, but we behave more like the children of the devil sometimes, and we seek forgiveness and we are forgiven. But he does this. He is the one that perseveres with us. And, and guides us in the way. That's what God does. You see, what is it to boast about in this world, in this life? What can you boast about being a Christian? True Christian, when he's asked a question, well, why are you going to heaven? He doesn't say, or we shouldn't say, I know we sometimes are, again, the massive contradictions. We shouldn't say, because I, 
Should we? If I were to ask each and every one of you, why is it that you are going to heaven? If you begin the question because I, and immediately don't follow it because I don't deserve it, and I, I made myself uh, a sinner deserving of hell. Uh, if, you, if you point to you as any reason for going to heaven, that's a mistake. That's boasting in you. A true Christian thinking straightly, let me say it like this, a true Christian thinking straightly, when asked the question, why is it that you're going to heaven? He'll say, because of God's grace. Why is it that you deserve to be there? I don't deserve to be there. What is it that you did? I didn't do anything. So what buys you your access to heaven? I was dead in my sins and trespasses. I was going to hell. I was completely opposed to God and, God and hating God. But God, who is rich in love, sent his son. And he lived a perfect life. And he died an atoning death. He paid for the penalty of my sins on that cross. So you ask me why I go to heaven? Because of what God did. Not because I prayed the prayer. Not because I had faith. In fact, you could even argue that Paul here is saying that even the faith you have is given to you by God. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Some argue that even the, uh, the, that, that, that that is there refers to faith particularly. But even if it refers to the whole, the grace that saved us through faith, it is not of ourselves. It is a work of God. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And brothers and sisters, especially on the Reformation Sunday, we need to remember this, that throughout history, church history is filled with a litany of uh, people trying to come in and add something of human uh, worthiness and effort into the work of salvation. It's been a, a pattern of church history from the first century up until the 21st century. It wasn't just a problem in the Mid Middle Ages. Augustine, one, one church founder that was so dear to the reformers, uh, Luther himself, he was an Augustinian monk. He read Augustine's works and one wonders if it was Augustine's works that steered them in this path of discovery in scripture. He fought off and he faced Pelagius, a heretic in the fourth century. And Pelagius would say that no, there is no original sin. No man is not dead in their sins and trespasses. That we cooperate, that we can, that, that God makes the way accessible and we, we, we need to be the ones doing the work to walk through that door that he has opened. Throughout church history, it was in the, in the Middle Ages and was fought uh, against by the reformers. But throughout the, the, the 17th, 18th, 19th century, even today, even today in evangelical circles, it's slowly sipping in this idea that if you pray a prayer, that you need to pray a prayer. It's not a lot. It's 99.99999% a work of God. But there is a 0.0001% of work of yourself. That's already a deviation from, what the from the truth that this passage presents. In God's kindness, in his love and mercy towards us, 
whenever these heresies have uh, surged up, God had his watchmen, he had his people to oppose and to refute those attempts. It was Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Latimer, Ridley here, Huss, Tyndale, Wycliffe, the Puritans of the sixth, uh, 17th century, the, 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 the great preachers of the Great Awakening in the, in the 18th century, Edwards, Whitfield. 19th century, we had uh, men like Gill, Fuller, Carey, Adoniram Judson, and Spurgeon. Towards the 20th century, you had men like Lloyd-Jones and, and Stott, two completely opposite men at times, but the, both of them believed in this one truth, that it is God, uh, that is salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the church in every generation needs to remember this. We truly, as G.I. Packer said, we stand on the shoulders of giants. God's salvation needs to be fought or the truth of God's salvation by grace alone needs to be fought for in our own generation. The truth that it is a word that, does, that man, no man should boast. It is a truth that needs to be fought for because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Yes, we do good works. No one denies it. The reformers, they didn't deny it. They believed that good works was the proof, was the authentication of this work that God has done. But proof, good works were not what caused it. But God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. And my question to you, as we close, is your life a living proof of the good work of Christ that God has done, of this but God working in your life? As God's workmanship, is God's workmanship demonstrated in your life? Our Lord Jesus it is said in the book of Acts that he went about doing good and healing the sick. <clears throat> Wherever he saw need, he went out of his way to, to minister. And the gospel of God's grace comes to make us like our Savior. We are predestined, uh, for those whom we foreknew, we are also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And the question for us, although we are, again, that mass of contradictions, that we are, as Luther said, sinners and saints. Simul justus and peccatori, you would say. Simultaneously just and sinners. Sinners and saints. But does our life, does your life, reflect something of the love, of the care, of the ministry of Jesus And if you're not a saint, and if you have not come to trust in God's grace yet, I'll point you back to the words we've considered a few Sundays ago. In him you also trusted after you heard 
the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Do you acknowledge your helpless condition, your helplessness? Do you believe this truth? If you do, come to Christ. Receive God's awesome gift of grace. Coming is not, coming in faith is not a work. Coming in faith is raising your two empty hands in your helplessness, in your, in your destitute condition. It's raising your empty hands and pleading for the mercy and the benefaction of God, for the favor of God. That is not a work. Come and plead his mercy. For Jesus has made the promise. Whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. For us, believers, the only appropriate response to what Christ, God the Father, has done through Christ, his Son, is to sing his praises. That's what Paul does. He begins this this letter by blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing even though we did not deserve it. And so should we. We should realize that we are debtors to mercy alone. And we should sing his, pra 